listen, same vision is for equal rights and justice for the people, them. What's happening to this beautiful world that we're living in? World citizen, lift up your voices. Everyone, to another episode of the People Powered Planet Podcast, where each week we interview amazing solutionaries. There are so many troubled, so many troubles uh, just besieging our planet that sometimes it can look hopeless. And so many podcasts focus on more and more troubles and more films focus on if you thought that was bad, it's even worse. And if you thought that was bad, folks, it's even worse than that. And you can start getting really depressed. But what we do here at the People Powered Planet is we realize that our visions, that what we picture can help build our reality. And so despite all the terrible calamities besieging our planet, we focus on solutionaries. What are the images of how we can actually build a better world? What are the what are the ways that we can actually make a difference and turn this around so that our planet and our wonderful, beautiful world we have of nature can survive and thrive uh, in this uh, in this in the beautiful opportunities that are ahead if we can just get our broken nation state system out of the way. <laughs> so today we have an amazing solutionary, Maya Groff. Maya Groff has really dedicated her life to really finding out how we can fix this broken world. And she's been, she, she's, it's, not, it's not only me saying that she's a great advocate of this, she, is, she and her three-person team were one of the recipients of the Global Challenges Foundation. They had a multi-million dollar contest for who's got the best ideas for how we can create a better way to run this planet of ours. And her team out of, out of, thousands and thousands of applicants of course with all the funds there they were one of the three winning winning teams that collaborated in receiving this uh, prize maya is a is a hague-based international lawyer uh she works on multilateral treaties and criminal tribunals uh and on models for how we can create a better planet and she's the uh co-author of global governance and the emergence of global institutions for the 21st century uh, she's also an advisor to uh, uh, Democracy Without Borders, and uh, she recently did a wonderful series of, of book club meetings with members of the Citizens for Global Solutions, another group working on solutions in our world. So welcome. Welcome, Maya. Uh, pleased to have you on our podcast. Thank you so much, Arthur. It's really lovely to be here with you and everybody. Nice to see everyone. Um, so let me first to have you tell me a little bit, how did you uh, get started? When in your life did you realize that, uh, uh, that the solution came to, uh, well, what, what was the, when did you discover what the key problem is that's causing so many challenges in our world? And when did you start thinking of solutions? It's uh, been an, an interesting path. I grew up in a very small town in rural Canada, on North Vancouver Island, um, but it was it was a very multicultural town uh, with people from all over the world who lived there and a really lovely community. So I was uh, in a, in very international environments from from a very young age, and then um, I had the the pleasure and the privilege to go to uh, United World College, Pearson College in Victoria, British Columbia which was focused on educating young people uh, for international peace through international education. Uh, so 
from the age of 17 to 19, I was with uh, students from 75 different nations at this school of just 200 people total. Um, it's a wonderful movement. If many of many of you may already be familiar with it, the United World College movement, but that was really for me such a formative experience being with uh, students from from every corner of the world, really, and including you know uh, refugees from various places uh, who had been displaced for various regions, and just people with such diverse life experiences and really getting a sense of what was happening on the ground around the world and different cultural perspectives. Then- uh, Before you move on to the next part of that, let me just say I'm thrilled to hear that because my own daughter, uh, Aura Canagas, who runs the American Friends Service Committee office in Washington, DC, mm -hmm. uh, she attended the United World College, Arm & Hammer United World College, original starter. <laughs> And she attended the one in New Mexico. And you're right, it's an amazing experience for a young person to, to be uh, in the middle of an environment with people from all over the world, such an eye-opening and incredible experience. So I'm thrilled to hear that uh, you came out of that, that, that background and that helped open your eyes to the world. So continue yeah, with your journey. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And even even before that, you know, I mentioned my my small town, which was actually very international and cosmopolitan, even though it was just five thousand people. Uh, but in Canada, with uh, with the multicultural kind of environment, uh, and then also there was an exchange with Japan um, uh, uh, with the British Columbian govern government. So I went to Japan when I was fifteen years old, and still have. A, a beloved uh, host family in Tokyo. So I guess I had this feeling that the world is really one country <laughs> from a very young, very, very young age. And beautiful, then, beautiful. yeah, then, then the international environment for me became just my community and, and where I felt most comfortable and most enjoyable and most exciting. So then I went on to study, you know, I did cross-cultural studies at Oxford and Harvard and did comparative oral literature, literature traditions of, of various uh, societies, which was so enjoyable and, and wonderful. And then went into law school and naturally gravitated uh, towards international law. So that's when I started my legal professional practice. First, first I started in corporate law in New York City, and that was a very interesting uh, education, and then um, soon after that, transition to international law in The Hague, uh, where I've been uh, practicing now for uh, uh, about 15 years. And uh, from, from that perspective, uh, I, I really saw sort of the beauty and the vision of a lot of the early legal practitioners uh, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, for example, there was a lot of foment uh, just before the, the, the First World War uh, by peace, peace activists and transnational civil society and peace activists, um, you know, uh, trying to advocate for world peace through world law, through international arbitration, for example. And so when I came into contact with uh, these various Hague legal institutions where I've been based for, for many years now, um, you know, you just saw this incredible vision that especially these early advocates had for international law. They saw this path uh, that humanity was on. They, they had this very clear vision. 
so kind of going through those historical layers of international law, I found so inspiring and then very much uh, kind of um, connecting with my passion for <laughs> international um, um, you know, bonding and, and community. And, and, and then it sort of the pieces fell, fell together in terms of, okay, we've lost a lot of the vision, especially the early vision of, of international law, I would say, uh, in, in terms of really working you know, much more systematically for, for peace. And I do believe that we have the tools now uh, to create a much more durable peace. We just haven't uh, activated them. And again, it's partially because of this, this historical amnesia and, and losing some of the original vision and thread of, of international law in particular. I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned that uh, amnesia because you know when we, when we show our film, The World is My Country about Gary Davis, uh, no one remembers that there was a powerful movement uh, mm -hmm. at the end of the World War II for uh, creating world governance. And that uh, in fact, uh, a large number of senators and so on were endorsing it and uh, and, uh, and 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 even in our movie Churchill, who was mm. the major uh, proponent of uh, of the war and, and our key architect of World War II, said that whole war was completely unnecessary. It never had to happen uh, if the League of Nations had gotten going and if they had gotten the international law things. And that was because one it lost by one vote in Congress. Imagine that because of one mm. vote. All the, the, the a key architect of World War II says the war wouldn't have happened if we'd had that global institutions going there. So, uh, you know, it's really phenomenal that people have kind of lost that and our movie is helping bring, bring back that, that vision. Um, I, I'm curious when you talk about uh, having, uh, uh, practicing international law, uh, what does that actually mean? How do you practice? Who are your clients? What do you do in international law in your practice? Yeah, so I've had a range of different uh, positions and um, engagements, but uh, a main organization I, I worked at for 11 years uh, total is um, a very old uh, international treaty organization uh, that predates the UN. It was actually founded in 1893, believe it or not. <laughs> it's called the Hague Conference on Private International Law. Uh, so in this organization, it relates a lot and works a lot with UN organizations, agencies, programs, which were created after this organization, which is one of the oldest international organizations in the world. Uh, but we worked on, on developing binding international treaties. Uh, so treaties that are binding on whatever states ratify or accede to these treaties across a whole, uh, you know, very wide spectrum of different legal issues, including commercial, civil litigation, cooperation, cross-border, uh, international child protection, uh, issues affecting persons with disabilities, uh, et cetera. Uh, so I, I sort of had this really extraordinary experience of working at this very old legal institution which had uh, the, the membership was in, increasing. It, it wasn't as universal as the UN, which has of course almost 200 members. Uh, this organization uh, had about 80 when, when I left, uh, but all you know, sort of uh, major, <laughs> major players, so to speak, and, and from, from, from all regions of, of the world were members of this organization. So I did a lot of diplomatic and legal work doing the background work, uh, developing uh, new treaties, potential new treaties, 
and then assisting also with the administration implementation of binding multilateral treaties. So working with judges, lawyers, government officials, uh, academics, uh, civil society organizations all over the world in, in, in terms of trying to make these multilateral binding treaties with very intensive cross-border cooperation obligations, trying to make them work better and work well to serve citizens around the world. And so this is this was like part of my uh, key international legal practice was really working on these multilateral treaties, which was so uh, interesting and enjoyable. And I, I, I met, and of course, challenging and, and difficult, hard work uh, very frequently. But also I was so inspired with the international officials, the government officials, judges, et cetera, who were so passionate about working together to have cross-border legal cooperation to make these international treaties work, um, often with very complex legal issues, very complex practical issues, also issues uh, you know, across diversity of legal systems, common law traditions, civil law traditions. We had a project with uh, uh, states uh, and jurisdictions with Sharia law legal traditions, um, but it was it was such a, an amazing, amazing um, sort of community of practice of, of different officials really dedicated to making international cooperation work. So that also was very inspiring in, in terms of what we can accomplish and the quality and the caliber of professionals we have around the world, across every country, really, uh, who, who are actually, you know, very dedicated to international cooperation. So that's part of my international legal practice. And then I've also been at a few of the ad hoc international criminal tribunals in The Hague, including the Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia and the Special Tribunal for Lebanon. And they're then very much involved uh, in terms of you know, various uh, events and, and, and different watching uh, different evolutions, for example, the International Court of Justice, International Criminal Court, Permanent Court of uh, Arbitration, among others. So The Hague is really like a hotbed of international legal uh, activity, and that's why I've, I've uh, stayed there for so long professionally. Yeah, well, that, you know, it, it's so interesting that uh, even within this kind of uh, a broken nation state system, there are these islands of a incredible uh, evidences of cooperation. I noticed uh, one of the people who is in our, uh, in our audience today, uh, part of the program here, uh, Barbara Mueller, and maybe in the question period, she'll want to say something. But she uh, says in our movie, The World is My Country, that since the European Union was formed, and she talks about how Gary helped uh, inspire the leaders of that, uh, not a single nation inside the European Parliament has fought a war with another member state there have been internal battles there have been civil wars there have been outside wars but that actually a continent that was plagued with war after war and two world wars that it actually did stop war tell us a little bit more about uh, the model of the european union and how that happened what it's done and how that might be helpful to the world yeah, absolutely. And I, I think this is a, a fantastic example, just as you say, to, to study where there were vicious, vicious wars, you know, cyclical wars over many, many generations. Um, and after finally the, the Second World War, the, you know, this, this great, terrible, appalling war, 
you know, finally there was, you know, really strong visionaries that, that stepped forward to, to start to first, you know, build this coal and steel union. So trying to have an economic basis, economic uh, collaboration and incentives for these countries to start to work together much more closely. Um, and, you know, coal and steel sort of prime products to make war. So also kind of like, let's do something different and useful uh, with, with this industrial capacity uh, together. And then, you know, gradually accreting then over, over many years um, to develop successive treaties, uh, uh, which have, have evolved so significantly and substantially since the early years, uh, really based on this, you know, the, the core sort of economic engine of the European Union as a basis, but then you know uh, building out to to have you know like a fundamental uh, rights agency and and of course linked to different human rights instruments, for example, the Council of Europe and and uh, otherwise you know so much of the European legislation is is very much informed by of course human rights and democratic values, uh, rule of law, uh, and and you know, now to the point where there's very strong supranational institutions within the European Union, for example, European Court of Justice of the European Union that can issue binding, you know, interpretation of European law and, and decisions, um, uh, a European Parliament, which has gradually uh, gained more power, uh, co-legislating co uh, ability over the years also. And, and I must add, is a very, very inspiring place to be. Every time I've gone uh, to the European Parliament to talk to members of the European Parliament, um, it's just a, just a wonderful uh, uh, visionary atmosphere, I find, <laughs> um, honestly, even though it's still a political process. But I find, uh, you know, the issues, they're thinking about cross-European cross issues in the public and citizens' interests that affect uh, citizens, you know, in these diverse countries across the European Union. Um, it's, it's really extraordinary to see. And then you also see, you know, a growing uh, ability of the EU to um, help to state certain values and certain, you know, models of, of collaboration at the international level. So sometimes the European Union officials uh, from individual countries or from European institutions uh, at the international level can be the most uh, open-minded about the next steps we might take uh, for international governance because they have the models, they've seen what can happen and that it's very, very beneficial for the countries involved. Yeah, you mentioned that uh, that even citizens can be involved in relating to that. And I remember going to the European Parliament when Esther Peter Davis, the uh, wife of uh, Gary Davis, uh, when she uh, was was alive, when she uh, spoke there, uh, and it was a it was an amazing institution of people working on uh, being solution. How do we solve these these specific problems? And yeah. something that Americans seem to be so totally unaware of uh, that, that that this even happened. I mean, uh, people I guess know that there used to be uh, border, you know, all these borders, uh, border lines, and now you can travel to Europe and you can just just drive right across without it. But they somehow don't don't get the significance. Uh, uh, tell us a little bit more about how that could actually uh, is is expanding uh, beyond Europe, and how that could be uh, a, a way a, a path toward uh, 
uh, creating global governance that could stop some of these crazy wars that we're having and keep them from happening in the first place, as, as Winston Churchill said. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I mean, the European Union has developed, you know, is accreted sort of over the year through different treaty law and institutional development and, and practices um, and, and, and in a unique way. Uh, of course, in the international system, we have, you know, the UN Charter, which is uh, the preeminent uh, legal uh, instrument for the international community that essentially every country in the world is a party to the, the UN Charter. And I would just recommend to everybody to reread the Charter. <laughs> it sounds strange. It's a legal document, a treaty, but it's unbelievably inspiring. It is such a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful document. And it, it is still, you know, it, it is still such a strong foundation for like our next, in my view, for, for our next um, steps forward as an international community. And this is sort of the premise of our book. Okay, if we took uh, our, our 2020 book, if we took the UN Charter as sort of the basis that's universally agreed, essentially, then what would be the next logical steps to, to strengthen the key provisions of the charter, the vision of the charter, uh, really what it was intending to do, which was to end war, was to you know, strengthen social and economic co cooperation around the world for you know, the freedom, dignity, uh, well-being of, of, of all peoples. Um, so, but I think, yes, the European Union, it's, it's, it's an incredible and really inspiring case study. I think there should be more study visits, for example, uh, by American officials and government officials, also by citizens to actually go and see the European institutions to learn about the history because it is deeply inspiring. Um, and of course, with the foundation of, of the EU, it was always meant to be interlocked and supportive and mutually reinforcing with the United Nations. So you, there's also that very profound linkage, you know, about really working together to create international peace and prosperity in, in the world. So I, I think there's yeah, many different parts of uh, EU as it exists now um, that could be looked at as models for the international system. For example, the Court of Justice of the European Union, is that a model, for example, that could be uh, drawn upon for the next uh, generation, next iteration of the International Court of Justice uh, within the UN system, which hasn't been reformed um, in over 75 years? Since the adoption of the charter, for example, but I would, I would, you know, I would not just take it as a model to cut and paste. It would, I would really think it through. I would study that model. What could we even do more at the international level? What would be suitable at the international level given the demands of international society? So definitely so many lessons within the EU, so many inspiring steps forward, which we have the luxury at the international level to learn from and take from, but we can we can make uh, you know even even more progressive changes, for example, or, or, or different aspects at the international level um, than, than have been done at the European Union, for example, if we want to. Well, you know, you mentioned that the uh, Charter of the United Nations is a treaty, which many people don't, don't quite realize. And the US Constitution says that tr treaties shall be the supreme law of the land, the supreme law of the land. And yet we see uh, and, and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights uh, codifies the guarantee of human rights that are in the UN Charter. The UN Charter uh, mentions multiple times the uh, 
that human rights, protection of human rights is key. And yet we find uh, those constantly being violated and uh, that, the, that the U.S. seems to ignore uh, the fact that it's got a binding obligation there. Um, do, what, what can be the way that, that uh, you can see uh, people being able to actually uh, rise up and empower uh, I mean, if, if we the people create government, <laughs> uh, in fact, this might actually be a good time to, to play a little Gary's clip uh, where he talks about how uh, we need to have some bottom up a way of trying to, uh, uh, to, to create international law beyond wait, sitting here waiting for the nation states to, to do it. Because here we see in the UN, uh, how is it going to reform itself when it's got this uh, veto power of the big powers and when the the big powers keep not wanting to uh, create uh, global governance above the their their their, their particular uh, power that they have their power struggle. Um, maybe give us a brief comment of that, and then we'll play the clip. A brief brief comment is that there have been some really extraordinary international citizen movements for international transformation, for example, for the Landmines Treaty, the, the creation of the International Criminal Court, the Nuclear Weapons Ban Treaty, um, the, the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities was so civil society uh, driven. Um, so we already see this phenomenon, which is, which, is, which is very profound. It's been very transformative for the international system. So yeah, it's it's very interesting to kind of hear hear Gary's ideas and and the way he was thinking and and to kind of use our imaginations also. I'm looking forward to watching the clip. Here in Vermont, we have town hall meetings. Today, with the internet, we can all meet in the same room, the global room. We don't have to give our power away to representatives who become magnets for special interest money. We don't have to be imprisoned by the inventions of the 1700s. We don't need a middleman. What if we invent a governing system in which each of us can participate? Not mob rule, but true collaboration. What if we invent world money? Why not? We humans are an incredibly ingenious species. Why squander our genes on inventing smart bombs to do ourselves in? Why not use our great ingenuity to lend smart golf a way we can all interactively and intelligently and heartfully govern our communities, our regions? in our world. Visionary, you bet, but doesn't every advance start with imagination? When we catch the vision of a people-powered planet, then, in this era of instant communication, we'll be able to evolve the tools and the platforms we need to bring the highest and best wisdom of each individual to the task of governing planet Earth. Once we tap into the sovereignty of the whole, we can unleash the genius of humanity. End war. 
end oppression, solve global warming. Global warming is at the forefront of a lot of people's minds and change of weather that we've been having, the weather patterns, the flooding, hurricanes, obviously human beings have had a devastating impact on our planet. It seems now more so than ever, we're, we're at a real tipping point. I'd like to ask, uh, you particularly, there's an old movie cliche, you know, the, the planet is in peril <laughs> and uh, it's the 11th hour and things look really dark and at the last minute our hero swoops in and saves the day, saves the world. Who's the hero who's going to save us? I think there's, there's got to be millions of heroes. That's my answer to that. This is a gigantic worldwide movement that needs to cross uh, cultural boundaries, religious boundaries. It needs to be, it needs to unify all of us. And I think how can you how can you argue with wanting uh, cleaner air, cleaner water? You know, these are fundamental human rights issues at the end of the day, and that's why it is such a universal issue and uh, uh, a movement that we all you know, should be a part of. Everything has to come from the will of the people. Well, so everything has to come from the will of the people. Um, and that's what we're not seeing in the world today. We're really, uh, in uh, how many people get to vote in, you know, any, any relationship to, you, to the United Nations or have any involvement? Uh, as you mentioned, we do through our, uh, to, to our individual organizations and organizations can be involved. But I think the key question is how can we really as, as a visionary, think forward to how we could really have more in this whole new interactive world where people are so involved and going online and so on, how could we begin to evolve a system where that brings out the highest and best wisdom of each individual, as, as, as Gary said, the current system of uh, win-lose voting, you know, is the race to the bottom, a downward motion to, uh, that, that divides us. Uh, how can we begin to build an interactive thing where people are working on solutions? Uh, any thoughts to some sort of future vision for how we could evolve uh, of what Gary called the people-powered planet? No, exactly. Technology gives us um, you know, so many more tools to connect people around the world, but um, we are missing sort of this, this vision of um, you know, very strong international cooperation and unity. Uh, transcending national divides. I mean, we have it among some segments of, of uh, society, but for example, uh, uh, in, in many countries, there, there is, there's a lack of education and exposure to the international understanding, you know, different cultures, different regions, um, and then the opportunity to have exchanges. So for example, one, one of uh, the very uh, extraordinary drivers of creating a European identity was the Erasmus exchange program uh, within the European Union for university students to exchange uh, across uh, European Union countries. Um, and so it's, it's sort of like, you know, it should start early and, and young, uh, also, you know, I've, I've been involved and in, in very much enjoying being part of a, a discussion group in East Asia, where they talk about uh, creating peace amongst East, East Asian nations through understanding of history and, and also the dialogue between countries. Uh, because, for example, history books tend to be very nationally focused on, on just a single national, but they tend to be very, you know, um, also focused on the wars, which, okay, yes, it's important to teach something about the conflicts to avoid, obviously, 
<clears throat> but also what about the history of cooperation? <laughs> what about learning about diverse cultures and countries? So we really do understand that we are part of, of one planet together, which is absolutely imperative for, for solving our international problems at the moment. Climate change, we, we simply cannot escape that. No one without collaborating together, no one nation can, can solve it on their own. So this is this is urgent, yeah. And, but in terms of like how you develop a system at the international level uh, for citizens to become more and more involved, that's that's certainly you know happening in various ways with UN consultative pro processes and you know public consultations, youth consultations, society engagement, where you have you know often grassroots organizations around the world being involved in in you know international dialogues. But yeah, there's so much more need for citizen to citizen connection, dialogue, and then starting to deliberate uh, about the various issues that are collectively confronting us. They've, you know, there have been sort of some very interesting citizen assemblies put together for climate change issues, including one um, uh, for at the international level for uh, at uh, UNFCCC the, at, at one of the COPs recently. There was a citizen global citizen assembly. And there's proposals, I shared the link earlier for trying to, um, you know, what are the next steps that we can include uh, global world citizens uh, perspectives in UN processes at the moment. So I think there are, there are steps and options, uh, but, but the vision that, that you're trying to communicate is, is still really missing uh, in, in many venues. Yeah, well, that, that's that's good. To, we should talk more about how to develop that vision more and and and, and develop it forward. Um, you know, it's uh, as you mentioned that international cooperation and, and international travel and youth exchanges and all these things. I'm reminded that some of the people on the podcast here, like Oswem, have been very involved with Rotary uh, International, mm -hmm. and he just had one with that over uh, over a thousand Rotarians signed up for this uh, uh, mega meeting uh, uh, with the incoming. Uh, international president of Rotary, and he's got others coming up. Uh, we also have people here from Citizens for Global Solutions, and uh, uh, and they have been so active in in focusing on just the kind of issues you're talking about. Uh, before I turn it over to the questions, let me ask you one more question. As you had the uh, as you had the book club of the Citizens for Global Solutions, reading your chapters together and discussing them, did your ideas? Uh, evolved from that experience? Were there questions or things that people raised that moved your thinking forward? Was that process uh, simply a matter of your teaching teaching us and, and Citizens for Global Solutions, or was it also something beneficial to the emergence and development of your ideas? Yeah, absolutely beneficial to further thinking and reflection on various of the, the design features, for example, that we've proposed uh, in our book as, you know, one example, one thought experiment from, from our perspective, the three authors on what could be the next steps forward for the international community. So yes, it was it was a very um, enjoyable and, and rich discussion. And, uh, you know, we had, even though the book is about 500 pages, we still had space limitations. You can't get into all the issues that are really important to explore. And also, I mean, our proposals in the book really were an offering to start discussion, to try to also resuscitate, you know, this frozen dialogues uh, around, you know, enhanced and, and next steps for international governance, 
whereas you know the UN Charter was supposed to be reviewed within uh, 10 years of its adoption in 1945. So there's there's again just a lack of, of serious conversations uh, around this topic. And yeah, it was a wonderful discussion. And there's so much more we could have you know uh, um, gone into and gone deeper and deeper into you know various issues, various dimensions. You know, just one issue that came up in, in the discussions and in other dialogues I've had recently is, you know, if we were to establish a parliamentary facility at the international level, how do we, you know, really avoid some of the, the very um, negative partisan politics that, that we see now in, you know, mature democracies, as they're called, and, uh, you know, money in politics, protection from lobbying, um, et cetera, et cetera. How do we make it, you know, genuine, like a next generation of ethical safeguards, which we didn't have time to get into in the book, for example, but there are many other issues that were touched upon that were very helpful. Well, what I really love about you so much is while many people have been, you know, advocating, oh, we ought to do this and we ought to have a way to govern our world you've been in there doing it at the nuts and nuts and bolts level you've been connecting with things and and you're just such a rich source of information and such an inspiration to all of us so with that i'm going to turn it open to questions and invite other people to tap into that wealth of experience that you have uh Mally, can you take the take it from here yes i can take it from here my goodness my um ah and i was part of the cgs uh book club so informative. You can go to Global uh, Citizens for Global Solutions website, or I'll put it in the chat. I already put it in the chat, and you can see the recording. So you'll see what we're talking about. But before you do that, buy her book. And I put that in the chat as well. So we are really crunched for time because we have so many questions coming up. We are going to go to our first question. Joan, go right ahead. Well, congratulations. It's just wonderful to see you after all these years. And I'm waiting for you to come to British Columbia. But uh, I, I, I'm so fascinated by what you're doing because, you know, I started the Global Compliance Research Project and I went through all these documents, but you've gone much further back. But the question I, I want to ask is that when I was trying to oppose the NATO invasion of uh, of Kosovo or Yugoslavia, uh, I was at the International Court of Justice where all the NATO members stood up there and refused to accept the jurisdiction. So it's, you know, it's wonderful having these laws, but when you have, and, and the US still hasn't, hasn't uh, agreed to go before the International Court of Justice after what happened in Nicaragua. So I, I mean, I feel that's, that's an unfortunate part. And there's just two other questions I wanna ask is, um, is that uh, just, just very quickly? I mean, to me, I was wondering if you were dealing with the two sections in the charter, which is wonderful reading. I certainly agree with you. Is 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 chapter seven? And I've noticed that the UN they always bypass chapter six, which is the which is the peaceful resolution of disputes, and they jump to chapter seven to try to get support. I was wondering if you've been advocating that, and also also making making in the having the charter have uh, uh appearing uh, respecting the international court of justice because it's it's uh, it's not a requirement for them to go to the international court of justice so i just wondering if you've been dealing with those and it's wonderful to see you again and congratulations i can't wait to see the book <laughs> thanks so much joan lovely to see you 
Yeah. Um, so in in the book, uh, and I've written also some some shorter policy pieces, which I shared with Melanie earlier about sort of like an international rule of law package that the international community might do well to adopt to increase its overall gov governance efficacy and integrity. Um, including making the ICJ a mandatory court, as courts should be. <laughs> um, that's just a, a normal rule of law system uh, to have uh, a mandatory court binding on, on, on all members in terms of uh, jurisdiction and then uh, rulings. And in terms of um, Chapter 6 versus Chapter 7, Yes, I was just making this very same comment uh, uh, last night at a presentation I made, uh, and uh, the point is made in, in, in the book and also with a proposal to strengthen how could we you know, take the next steps to strengthen uh, chapter six on peaceful settlements of disputes. And I found um, uh, writing and uh, comments from Green Hackworth, who was a US legal advisor at the Department of State during, uh, during the war, World War II, and uh, helped uh, to advise and draft uh, the charter um, with the US delegation and also um, International Court of Justice uh, design. And, and his view on chapter six was that it was the cardinal feature of the charter. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and, and I, it, it's, it's been lost. It's really been lost. And again, this is part of the amnesia. And the whole point was that war is outlawed there should be collective security and uh, all states have the obligation. And it's, this is already a binding obligation under international law to settle their disputes peacefully. So, so yes. Thank you. Yes, thank you. And quickly to our next question, David. David, go right ahead. Hi, Maya. Uh, so a, qu a quick request and then a question, which um, probably you, you can't answer in a short time, but we can discuss this in, in the future, but the quick request is to say that um, the World Court of Human Rights Coalition would uh, deeply appreciate uh, your expertise and guidance to uh, advance the, the draft statute for the World Court of Human Rights. Uh, and we have meetings once a month. Our next meeting is on July 26th. Uh, and so I, I'd certainly like to reach you outside of this meeting to talk about that. The, the question uh, I have, relates to the very last sentence of your book, which I, I think was inspired by uh, Baha'u'llah, the Baha'i faith, where you say the earth is one interdependent country with all, uh, all of humanity as its citizens uh, in, in your book, Global Governance. And of course, that's what Gary Davis did his entire adult life to promote that. And so one of the questions which I didn't really get to ask when you were there at the, at the CGS book club is, do you have some suggestions of how we can advance world citizenship as a recognized legal status around the world so that everyone's rights and duties, their full rights, the panoply of all the rights, not just a modicum of rights, but all the rights could be recognized. So that would really uh, uh, end statelessness. So that no matter where you find yourself, uh, you are a citizen since you're a citizen of the world. Wonderful, big, big questions. <laughs> Firstly, on the, on the practical question, yeah, let me know. I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, we have the chapter in the book about also suggesting it's time for uh, an international human rights tribunal. So let's let's be in touch. I'm very overstretched, but love to have a conversation with you. Um, and then uh, in terms of Oof, strengthening global citizen. This is badly, badly needed. Um, 
it's it is so it's so profound and it's so beautiful there's so many communities around the world and like the youth in particular but also you know all those those people who are really devoted to international cooperation or you know in various countries who 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 really you know have the empathy and really recognize um our, our human commonality and and really want to passionately work work for this so I think there's like ready audiences and and very um, very willing citizens around the world that would love to get involved, but then how how to do this in terms of like you know a movement and and what would be the terminology to use and the narratives, including for younger generations these days? Because I think there are a lot of opportunities because the the, the younger generations are also much even more internationally minded. So I think, uh, you know, Ban Ki-moon has his Center for uh, Education on Sustainable Development Goals and Global Citizenship. And by the way, there are amazing obligations in so many international uh, treaties and also the SDGs about education um, for, for peace, for human rights, uh, for understanding international cooperation. So we have like a richness of, of resources but I think, yeah, the issue is the platform um, and how we build momentum and have, you know, the funding, the structure to really um, accelerate this sort of uh, commitment and understanding. Uh, and, and then the legal status, um, <clears throat> again, that would require some some advocacy and and. Uh, it could be, you know, uh, an international treaty, uh, which could be, uh, you know, it should be, of course, a high quality uh, treaty, carefully designed. Um, and, but again, I think there will be a lot of citizen support uh, for such for such an instrument because so many people are very, very deeply concerned about statelessness, about uh, refugee populations, et cetera, where where people are so uh, vulnerable. Uh, so. Yeah, it's it's an area ripe for more work, <laughs> basically. So no easy answers, but really, really important uh, questions. Yeah, and great advice. And I do hope you'll find squeeze in time for the World Court of Human Rights. That would be awesome. Um, okay, Michael, you're up. Oh, hi, Maya. A wonderful talk. Uh, this is really fantastic uh, because... Uh, I'm so interested in where you are at The Hague and, and it's such a cosmopolitan hub. So my question had to do with the EU's relationship with, with Switzerland, which is not an EU member, and uh, the, the UK, which has left the, the European Union. So if you could comment on that and see what might be done to, or what's happening now. I won't get very technical because, for example, uh, the UK still has very strong relations, of course, with the EU. Um, uh, uh, yet has has gone down this uh, uh, path, the Brexit path, of course, <laughs> and the legal, you know, all the legal transitional uh, arrangements, for example, of some international treaties I was I, I was working on, you know, quite complex and, and a huge headache. So thankfully, I didn't have to take care of uh, any of that. I'm very grateful. <laughs> and also the um, various EU very complicated arrangements to leave as as they did, um, and then of course Switzerland has never been uh, a member of of the EU, but yet you know has a whole host of of different legal and cooperation arrangements with the EU uh, that are that are quite extraordinary. So uh, you know I I. I 
uh, it just shows like how how close the international cooperation arrangements are, you know, within Europe, even even if countries aren't officially a member of the EU, and how influenced indeed they are by by EU norms and regulations, and but also the benefits that those countries see in 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 very close uh, uh, engagement with the EU. Uh, so in terms of like future forecasts for what's going to happen in the UK and will they rejoin the European Union? I mean, who knows? Uh, um, yeah, I mean, the country was so split by a narrow margin. Um, the financial effects have, have been very serious, of course. Um, so it just, you know, depends on how leadership uh, evolves there. Um, and maybe, you know, after some time, there will be reconsideration. Um, because certainly, I mean, from my vantage point, there was such a lot of room for maneuver of the UK within the EU. It was such a respected state within the Union to, um, you know, to be to show really leader like strong leadership within the European Union, um, and the benefits were so uh, multiple. So uh, we shall see. I'm I'm not holding my breath. Um, <laughs> these trends sort of come and go, and it's there's been an interesting. Uh, effect with the UK leaving the EU that uh, many countries on continental Europe has, have become, the populations have become more appreciative of the EU, uh, realizing indeed by this example, the, 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 all the benefits financial and, and the sort of financial and other disadvantages of, of possible withdrawal. Yes, you don't know what you have till you lose it. Okay, quickly over to Rebecca. Rebecca. Thanks so much. Okay, so starting with a couple thank yous, a few quick points because I'm just unable to resist as a fellow international lawyer having Maya's inspiration and then ending with a plug. Um, so firstly, Maya, thank you so, so much for giving so much time to the book club with CGS um, and to all of our cooperation. We have several more uh, initiatives that I will plug at the end. And uh, Arthur and Melanie also thank you so much for your participation and kind words along with David and others. Um, just a few quick points. I actually wasn't uh, intending to speak when I put a few things in the chat about U.S. cooperation with the EU entities, uh, the European Parliament in particular. Um, I would commend that to, to folks that are interested. Um, I will also say that uh, one thing that's gone, I think, a little bit unnoticed is that this is the 20th year um, marking the United States uh, revocation of our membership in the Interparliamentary Union. Now, the Interparliamentary Union is um, an interesting beast itself. It's not all democracies, but it's every country in the world basically except us. Um, and so uh, being, uh, you know, 2003, the year that we left, uh, it's an interesting time to review that. That's something at CGS that we're looking at in terms of domestic advocacy on the Hill. There have been resolutions put forward beforehand. Um, uh, secondly, um, picking up a little bit on, on Joan's um, questions or comments about, about ICJ jurisdiction, um, this is also, I think, an interesting time and a moment where um, CGS and other like-minded organizations, including some that Maya is affiliated with, um, have some forward movement. Um, Switzerland, um, skewing back to Michael's question as well, um, is one of the countries that is sponsoring a um, a, a declaration towards um, states um, consenting to compulsory jurisdiction of the ICJ. Only 73 states have to date. What it's interesting about this is while there might be 
perennial objectors like the United States. There probably are a lot of other states um, for that might be low hanging fruit in this department. And even where we see states not take up compulsory jurisdiction like the US, um, we do see a lot of policy change. And using the example of Nicaragua v. US, um, that seminal case, even though United States declined to uh, participate in the proceedings, we did actually see significant policy change. And, and fun fact, one of the backbench lawyers, one of the junior attorneys at the State Department representing the United States in that case, is now the chief judge of the International Court of Justice, the first U.S. chief judge. So it is an interesting roundabout. And if you talk to her privately, she will share her thoughts on U.S. v. Nicaragua and our participation in the court. Um, and then just picking up a little bit more on, um, uh, on regional entities and regional methods of cooperation as potential modalities um, for, for global government. Um, I think it is really interesting, of course, to study uh, the, the Brexit example and study the ins and outs of the European Union. Um, it's also very instructive to look at other regional gatherings and groupings and where many of them have come together as the European Union originally did as the, uh, the, the coal and steel community um, to further economic goals. Um, sometimes we see that at the expense of other goods. Um, sometimes we see it at the expense of human rights. Sometimes we see it at the expense of um, some climate goals, other times not. Um, I'm thinking, for example, of um, uh, ECOWAS, SADC, um, and uh, the Inter-African Inter Development Authority in, in Africa, each being somewhat, um, having good and bad and ugly in, in all of that. Um, ASEAN would be another example. And for every European Court of Human Rights or um, Inter-American Court on Human Rights, there is the African Court of Human and People's Rights that has some problematic constructs when we talk about, for example, a World Court of Human Rights, for example, heads of state immunities. So I think all of that could be fodder for many, many more conversations, but just let me end by plugging um, Maya tomorrow in our intergenerational panel. Um, on, and, and when we talk about solutionaries, um, I think this is really bringing the positive energy to the climate peace uh, disarmament nexus. Uh, this is co-hosted by CGS, uh, the World Federalist Movement, IGP, and Institute for Global Policy and Youth Fusion. And tomorrow's um, event will take place at um, 12 p.m. EST, there is a second panel at a much less forgiving time for, for our um, hemisphere, but to encourage um, global participation. So I'll put that again in the chat. Thank you so much and sorry to overrun my time. Well, thank you, Rebecca. And quickly to Faisal, we have one minute for you. If you could uh, be quick. Uh, just quickly, uh, my one worry about World, World Federation is, is how does how are local, is, how is local sovereignty you know, uh, respected in such and such and such a federation. Now, how do local communities, etc., protect their resources and whatever from uh, like globalist uh, you know, intent? Others might have other views, but um, you know, part of the answer is, of course, how you design. If if you're looking, for example, a closer world federation, in a way, we already have a kind of world federation through the United Nations. Their their obligations uh, the states have uh, to each other to this international institution uh, that are binding. 
uh, but it's it's you know a, a, a sort of a proto-federalism or a weak federalism, but very important to deliver to try to deliver key international public goods. You know, a cross-border sprawling world war is not good for any country. You know, climate change. Of course, we have extremely weak, sadly, governance there. Is not good for any nation. Uh, violation of the planetary boundaries. So, for the first point is sort of like proper, good, effective global government will deliver global public goods for diverse localities and shouldn't be in contrast to, to uh, diverse localities. But then in the design, you know, within the European Union, you have the principle of subsidiarity. The European level is only engaged if it cannot be solved at like a lower level of, of governance and federal systems might employ that kind of principle in various ways. But I think, um, you know, I think we're also in a new era of governance generally, where the local is really coming into sharp relief and also understanding of, you know, the diversity of our communities within any given nation state. The nation state is already like a large block, which can be very hegemonic and, and you know, um, central over centralized. So, but then, you know, so so how, how, how do we at all levels of governance really um, value, cherish, the local and ensure that the local flourishes, both in terms of people, diversity of communities, groups, diverse groups, but also our, our individual diversity. Um, and then, you know, our different cultural uh, groupings and, and historical experiences. I think this is all can be accommodated within our governance structures. But the, for me, the global should enable the flourishing of diversity, the flourishing of the local. And also, we see these trends really powerfully at the international level of, of local communities being very, very present um, uh, and indigenous communities and having, you know, this, this voice at the quote unquote highest levels of, of, of global governance as it's incarnated now. So I think it has to be really thought through carefully in terms of the design. And yeah, it's an exciting era if we can put our heads together to imagine what would be, you know, what is helpful to sort of have that international kind of, you know, orchestration, ordering, international rule of law so that we have, you know, shared expectations. We can all, we can all rely on a peace system where we're, we know there's not going to be random invasions or, you know, proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. We need to rely on that, all of our communities. But then how do we, you know, order all the different other issues? I think it's, these are really exciting um, uh, and, and like very rich challenges that we should think about together. Thank you so much, Maya. I know you have to go. And so we're going to close the, the, the questions. Thank you. Thank you. And I just want to say how honored we have been to have you here, your expertise, your, your knowledge, your advice. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Now I'm going to send it back to Arthur. Arthur, take it away. Thank you. That was amazing. And, you know, Gary often talks about uh, global, that we need to go global and local at the same time uh, to, gl to globalize our world. <laughs> and, uh, and that's so key. Thank you so much. I know you have to run with another event. Uh, I think you've already put your uh, links and your book and everything in there. Everyone, please go to those. Uh, thank you so much. And thank you for being part of another uh, wonderful day, especially great day on the People Powered Planet podcast. World citizen, lift up your voices. Oh, you know we got something to say. All we need is the same directions, heading in one way. One way.